MSW Media. So, Asha, what is driving the rise of anti-Semitism and white supremacy? Mm, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I'm a former FBI special agent and teach national security law at Yale University. And I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renato Mariani. I'm a former federal prosecutor a practicing lawyer and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Renato, (laughs) you know, we're having this national conversation right now because Trump, once again, has been engaging in, in this time, in pretty uh, direct dialogue with white supremacist Nick Fuentes, who he had to dinner uh, at Mar-a-Lago along with Kanye West, who has recently been in the news for his anti-Semitic comments. And so, you know, we're really focused on Trump and his normalization of uh, white supremacy and the silence of Republicans and condemning it. But I'm curious what your take on this is and, you know, how much broader we need to expand this conversation. Well, I I will say, I think that, uh, first of all, I didn't know who the heck Nick Fuentes was. I don't know if I was alone on that one. I'm like, who is this guy? Uh, Watching a bunch of clips of him talking, I mean, he seems to be not only like, uh, you know, it's one thing to say someone's a white supremacist or anti-Semitic. It's another thing like this dude is like really proud of it and very outspoken and is out there um, trying to win over others to his cause. Like, yes, I'm proudly racist. I'm proudly anti-Semitic. He was there at Charlottesville, that notorious time when, uh, you know, Trump said there's good people on both sides. So, you know, this this guy is a preacher of hate and for Trump to have sat down, had dinner with this guy is concerning. And, and I don't know if you saw Asha, but um, there was reporting from Axios from Jonathan Swan about what was said at the dinner. And it sounded very accurate, right? It, It sounded like the sort of thing. I mean, he said multiple sources confirmed it. It sounded like the sort of thing Trump would say where Trump's like, I really like you. Um, you know, you're, are you on the fringes of my, you know, Fuentes is like, yeah, I support, I supported you. Uh, Trump is like, are you on the fringes of my support? And he's like, yes, like that must be their euphemism for like, are you a white supremacist or racist or something along those lines? And then Fuentes basically is like, well, I'm leaning towards DeSantis. And they had a whole conversation about that. It seems like Trump realizes like those people are his base and he has to cultivate them because that's what's going to win him the nomination over DeSantis. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is not new, right? Let's just take a trip down memory lane. Trump was endorsed by David Duke back when he was running in 2016. And he did not immediately disavow that. He claimed that he didn't know who David Duke was. David Duke, by the way, was former Grand Wizard of the KKK. Then Charlottesville happened, and he made the famous comment that there are, you know, fine people on both sides. Then there was the presidential debate in 2020, where he was asked about the Proud Boys, and he said to them, stand back and stand by, which they took as, 
you know, a clarion call to rally to his side. And so, you know, this is kind of a, a one more thing in a long line of events where Trump has very, made very clear who he is. And the only thing that surprises me is that we're surprised about it. Not that we shouldn't be talking about it and condemning it, but it's, I, I'm just like, you know, this is, this has been a process of normalization and acceptance of Trump essentially embracing these people and and acknowledging that, that as you said, that they are a part of his base. Yeah, you know, you said the word normalization. I mean, to me, that's really the story here. I mean, that's the important thing for us to be thinking about. I mean, Trump, you know, obviously he was the president of the United States. I've spent a lot of my, a lot of my time talking about the concerns and that I have the evils of the Trump administration. But I think going forward, I think what concerns me the most is how this is living on and becoming mainstream. I mean, you know, Trump's excuse for this Fuentes dinner was, hey, I didn't know who Fuentes was. Kanye West brought him with him. But of course, Kanye West is an anti-Semite, right? I mean, Kanye West is preaching anti-Semitism. Uh, and, you you know, promoting that on social media and preaching anti-Semitism and hate. And, you know, so why Trump would decide that this is a person that he wants to align himself with is something. I mean, I know that Kanye West has delusions he's going to run for president, and that's maybe what's part of it. I mean, that would be Trump's reasoning. But I, I think that, you know, it's a concern for me when I see this Um particularly because my wife and stepdaughter are Jewish, um, seeing how it's become in vogue for a lot of people in the public eye to casually talk about anti-Semitism. The Anti-Defamation League, which many, I mean, I think for a long time, most of us have considered that to be a pretty mainstream uh, organization that is trying to combat hate, um, is now being treated by Republicans as like, oh, they're leftists and it's taken over by the leftists and this and that. I mean, to me, it's it's very concerning that this is becoming normalized, particularly within the Republican Party. Yeah. And I think it's important to emphasize that it's not just a normalization in someone's attitude or position. It actually has consequences in in terms of manifesting in the form of violence against people. Um, there's been a rise in anti-Semitic related violence. We've seen attacks on synagogues. And I think it's important to also mention that there was a you know white supremacist thread in the events of January 6th. There's actually a great... Um, uh, piece today in the Washington Post where Greg Sargent interviews Kathleen Bilyeu. Uh She is an expert on the white power movement, the history of the white power movement in America. And I, by the way, I recommend her book. It's uh, called Bringing the War Home. Um, and it's it's about the white power movement in the United States, kind of going back from the aftermath of Vietnam all the way up to the Oklahoma City bombing. And what she talks about is that we tend to write out you know, we tend to look at these different events um, like Oklahoma City as these discrete, you know, domestic terror events. And we take out the white supremacy thread that is behind it. And she says that we are kind of doing that with the narrative surrounding January 6th as well. Yeah. And I and I will just say that, you know, we're, we talk a lot about uh, 
there's a lot of rhetoric about Jewish people, and I think that at times, um, you know, the non-Jewish community, Gentile community, is like, well, um, they're, there's they're overreacting. Obviously, given the history of their of their uh, people, it's understandable why they're very concerned. But I will just say that you know, one thing that I don't think a lot of folks see or understand is just you know, you talked about attacks on synagogues, like how real it is for all of them. I mean. I, I've been to synagogues many times since I've been with my wife, and um, there's always armed guards in synagogues. Like people don't realize that, but there's always like off-duty police officers there. Um, it, you know, in synagogues in the city, when I was in, in synagogues in Chicago, they have like fencing and like electronic gates that you have to get authorized to enter. It's like you know entering a secured facility to get inside a synagogue. Or same thing with the Chabad, like any of these sort of centers of Jewish life, they are protecting themselves. Why? Because they are literally concerned about people coming in and gunning them down and killing them, uh, which is something that I understand we're all concerned about that. And we could have probably made our first topic today gun violence, because that's also a concern, you know, in our schools and other places. But there's a reason why they have a they're, they're particularly concerned. And so, you know, when when somebody on Twitter is promoting anti-Semitic views, it's it's more than just a joke because there are people out there who really, I think, are, are using that and, and turning it into violence. Yes. And I think, again, to kind of connect it to the broader white supremacist movement, um, and I'm going to kind of invoke Kathleen Ballou's book, book here because she talks about a uh, a book called The Turner Diaries, which is sort of the Bible for the white power movement. And this is um, basically a fiction novel, a, a novel that um, has a fictional account of essentially overthrowing the government and then engaging in basically genocide uh, to create this utopian Aryan nation. And this is like in... Uh, many ways, I think we see the echoes of this in, and this is what she talks about in this interview, in this Washington Post piece, um, what people saw about January 6th, or when they're engaging, you know, they feel like they are engaging in some righteous cause. And it's also driven by rhetoric that we hear um, uh, from people like Tucker Carlson on, you know, things like replacement theory, this idea that, um, you know, immigrants and Jews are replacing the white population and that there's, you know, the, a dwindling, um, you know, white population that needs to be preserved. So I think, you know, there's so many different threads of this. And I don't know that we have a conversation with people like Professor Bilou who can bring it all together and actually connect it to the stuff that we are seeing manifest every day. Yeah, I think, it. you know, it's interesting, these threads of white supremacist ideology really have leaked into popular culture, particularly on the internet. I mean, I have been blown away over the years at how 4chan and all and its memes have really proliferated. You know, there, you know, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, there is this part of the internet where there are essentially message boards where you can post without where in fact the norm is for you to post without having any identity whatsoever like truly anonymized and so when you're referring to somebody else's post you're referring to the timestamp only and everyone is anonymous 
That's, by the way, the whole anonymous movement kind of sprung from one of those, that, that part of that same set of message boards. But, the, you know, a lot of Internet memes that we all enjoy, which are kind of a lot of them are funny, uh, spring from that part of the Internet. Um, you know, as somebody I've encountered a lot of folks from that er from that uh, area of the Internet for my, a lot of times in my over my life, just I, they do gaming and things like that. And you encounter all these people who are super into that. And there's a lot of, you know, very uh, dark sides to it. Lots of uh, child exploitation, child, child pornography, child exploitation, things like that. But there's also rising and it's really risen during the Trump era, you know, misogyny white supremacy, racism, and it's baked into a lot of the memes that you see. So when people are seeing Elon Musk promote these sort of troll type folks, that's really what he's promoting is these people who have this, this um, come from this internet culture where, you know, having, you know, racist views or misogynistic views is mainstream. And it's, to me, that's what makes this so complicated is there are a lot of people out there and I, you know, I have seen some of them in my social media feeds, people that are otherwise normal, who have gone to normal, you know, high schools and colleges, people I've known at some point in my life who suddenly get taken up by very extreme ideologies online. Yeah. And I think that that kind of to continue your point that it's the normalization, that's the story. It's that these normal firewalls that we've had, listen, this has been, anti-Semitism has been here forever. I mean, this predates Trump. You know, I kind of think about it as a festering wound and Trump is sort of the pus that kind of comes out. I'm sorry, that's gross. But like, you know, it's it's true, right? Like it's been there. It's just sort of been covered up, you know, or at least we've had these firewalls of not allowing it into the mainstream. And what you have now is, you know, we had, we'd had social media platforms that had content moderation things that kept these people out. Now Elon Musk has opened the floodgates and they're coming in. Trump has opened the doors of Mar-a-Lago and you know brought them in. And as I mentioned before, he's been doing this for the last six years um, into our uh, the the presidency itself. Um, we have members of Congress who, you know associate with these people and who espouse these views, uh, Paul Gosar, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, and so the, what used to be, I think, at least, you know, on the surface, like at the fringes, or at least people try to claim that they weren't embracing it, people now openly embrace it. And it's coming into um, spaces where they have traditionally been excluded and shunned. Um, and I think that that is really problematic. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of what has happened here is the, um, you know, the removal of some of the non-legal barriers that have kind of kept these people on the margins. And, you know, I think what we're really seeing with Twitter is, you know, uh, it's something that I know that there have been books written about the death of expertise, right? Isn't that what uh, that guy, uh, Tom Nichols, has written about? You know, in other words... Um, you know, one thing that we've always done is we credit the fact that, hey, you know, Jonathan Swan at Axios has done a lot of research and he's got these sources. And so when he's reporting about what's going on inside some movement or behind closed doors, we credit that. Or, you know, you've qu quoted a, a fantastic book that people could check out about white supremacists. We we credit that professor to you because she's 
you know, she has, uh, she's an expert on this area. She studied it for years and she's written a sort of an authoritative, comprehensive view of, of white supremacist movements. Well, now this, there's this idea, well, any like troll on the internet who pays $8 essentially has an equal voice to her. And there's something wrong with that in a in one sense, in the sense that, sure, I think it's it's great about having a democracy where everyone can speak. And I think one nice thing about the Internet is that it allows anyone who has a computer and Internet access to or a, a device and Internet access to engage in that debate. And frankly, that's part of the reason both of us are here is because both of us are people who found a voice through the Internet. But I think there's a real concern when you're elevating random internet troll um, and saying, well, that isn't his, you know, his offhand opinion, which is general often misinformation, should be credited more than the New York Times. And I think that's part of what Musk is trying to do. Say, oh, you can't trust the New York Times. You can trust random internet troll, which, by the way, is the same thing Trump did. Right. I mean, that's it's yeah. in the same vein. Well, and to add to that, uh, you know, that the, these that our technology today artificially amplifies these voices. In other words, they're not competing on the same playing field as the expert. Um, there's an entire army of bots and trolls that push out um, the the moderate and expert voices, um, so that you know they're the ones that are being heard. Uh, what do we do about that? I mean, I have to be honest. Like, I feel sort of, um, I I feel a sense of despair. I get despondent because I'm not really sure when, like. You know, when I see that elected officials are unwilling to condemn this, who are themselves associating and embracing it, are uh, repeating the tropes and, um, you know, fomenting uh, hate, like, I'm just sort of like, well, where do we go from here? Um, I... I want to feel, I want to believe that the pendulum is going to swing, that that we will get to a place. Because I don't think that this is the majority of opinion. I, I really do think you have an extreme that has kind of taken over in terms of, um, you know, being heard, but it's not representative. Like how, you know, I, I want to believe that the pendulum is going to swing the other way, but I'm not really sure how that happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's fair to say from my perspective, it's above my pay grade as well. In other words, you know, there, this, this, this is one big problem. Another one that I feel totally unqualified to know the solution to is this balkanization where we are all, you know, in other words, I, you know, I'll get my news from maybe MSNBC and uh, the Huffington Post and a bunch of people on a Twitter feed that are not my views. Uh, or that are, that represent my views and somebody else is getting all their news from like, you know, right wing radio and Fox News and a bunch of, you know, right wing trolls on Twitter. And they have we live in different universes. Right. And rarely do we cross. Uh, I do. That's a problem I don't know how to solve either. Um, I will say some, by the way, uh, I'll just answer. You know, I get a lot of comments and questions on Twitter all the time. Like, why do you follow this hateful, awful person? <laughs> and the reason I follow like a subset of hateful, awful people is so I understand what they're talking about. I mean, it's part of what helps me try to understand, you know, what what that ecosphere is doing. And so that's why I follow them. But not just it's a, I don't view it as a badge of support at all. But but my point is, I think these are huge problems. And, and the as to the issue you are just, you know, we've been talking about, to me, I do think it's going to get better. Um, but it, the, the sweep of it in the direction of it's going to remain the same. In other words, 
I do think the Republican Party is starting to realize that like aligning itself with this base of, you know, to use Hillary Clinton's phase, phrase, deplorables, is a losing strategy over time. And it's costing them. And they're ultimately losing the suburbs and generations of women and so on. But so they need to find like a version of a Trump light, right? A diet Trump. Uh, that is not as offensive, but has enough nods to these folks that they bring them along for the ride. And I do think that that's the direction that the Republican Party is trying to go to. And I think, frankly, a good lead into maybe our next subject. But I think that that will make things better in the short term. But in some ways, it's more dangerous because it, it further normalizes this as you know a permanent feature of uh, the American political landscape. Yeah, it's cleaning up the pus, but the wound is still there. Wow, great. You turned the analogy <laughs> went right back to the analogy. Uh, I love it. Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Kahn and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzz Kills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe because when BS is popping, we pop off. So Renata, let's talk about the change in control of the House and what that means going forward in terms of who's going to become the speaker, what it means for committees, what it means for investigative priorities. Because uh, I have a feeling that kind of to your earlier point about it, it. well, you didn't say this. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, you said it's going to get better, but I think it's going to, we're going to have a J curve here um, for the next two years, at least in Congress. What do you think? Yeah, I do think that that's, that's not going to be pretty. I actually think it's going to be very interesting to watch. And here's what I mean. The the Republicans have been excited to take over the House for some time. Like now they'll have the power to investigate. They're going to have the, you know, they can impeach people, so on and so forth. But the way in which they obtained it, where they they very likely, well, not very likely, they will likely, I think, lose ground in the Senate, right? At the very, at the best, they're going to stand pat. And then in the House, their majority is really, really thin, like two votes or something. You know, we don't know exactly how it's going to shake out, but it's it's a handful of votes. Uh, it's not at all what they expected, and I think, you know, accordingly, um, they are they're trying to learn the lesson from that, and they're moderating some of their rhetoric. But it's hard to do because a, the people in the House are all the extremes. These are all the people from gerrymandered districts. And the, the people who are in leadership are people who have, you know, been in these gerrymandered districts for quite some time and are always appealing to that base element. And their only real election is their primary. And also, you know, these folks made a lot of promises to that base, right? And in, in when you only have a, a, a thin margin, you need everybody. So not only do the moderates, can the moderates exert some pressure and say, hey, we we might not vote for this or that. And if you lose a few votes, uh, then you you can't get things passed. But similarly, you know, the Freedom Caucus is putting pressure. So, you know, on Meet the Press this week, you know, there was the new head of the House Oversight Committee or the expected, the guy expected to be. 
And Chuck Todd was trying to goad him into saying, like, what do you want to investigate? And he, I'm like, what's your number one priority? And, like, he never mentioned Hunter Biden, right? You know, he, he, he's trying to not say Hunter Biden's name, but make it clear that he's trying to, you know, he's going to go after and investigate, you know, everything he can in the Biden administration. And, you know, um, um, Kevin McCarthy came out and talked about impeaching Mayorkas. He's not talking about impeaching Biden. This is the quote unquote moderation. They're going to try to impeach the Homeland Security uh, Security Director uh, Secretary, which is going to go nowhere. Um, but it's just they're they're trying to stop to that pace. Wait, can, I know this is sort of beside the point, but why do they want to impeach the? Because DHS we have Secretary? a quote border crisis, and he's quote lied about it. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a high crime or misdemeanor okay. apparently. <laughs> Oh, boy. Um, well, where do we even start with this? <laughs> it's uh, going to be crazy. Yeah. Um, OK, so why don't what, let's start with the January 6th committee. Why don't we talk about that for a second? Because I think it's probably fair to say that that's going to be disbanded. Oh, yeah. It's not going to exist very soon. So there is a report that's going to come out. I think they always anticipated that. And yeah, they did. And I'm wondering, like, what happened? So I have a question about, like, what happens to the report? I mean, obviously it gets released. It's put into the public. I remember, though, that when the whole enhanced interrogation technique, the torture scandal Mm -hmm. happened and uh, was exposed, um, the Senate Intelligence Committee investigated that. And there was an entire report that came out um, that, you know, looked into that program and, you know, all the, the the fact that it was ineffective and illegal and all of these things. And then I think the Senate, then a, a future Senate committee, like sort of buried it or retracted it or something like that. And I don't know that that has any practical difference. It's still in my national security law casebook and we still read it. But what my question is, like, what can happen in terms of the legitimacy of the findings Um at least as a formal matter. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's interesting. I mean, part of this, a political question, I guess what I would say is if the Republicans are talking about January 6th, they're losing. So I think Democrats would be thrilled to have the Republicans take up a lot of their airtime early on in their control of the house, uh, discussing and debating January 6th and trying to defend it. Cause there's really no defense to it. The images and videos speak for themselves of, you know, police officers getting beaten and, you know, our, our capital being desecrated and waving the Confederate flag and all of that. So if they want to go there, they can. But I don't, I think that they're probably going to move on to other things and focus on going after the Biden administration. Um, but, you know, pr- as a practical matter, you know, if whatever they do, I, I, I don't think I don't really think it matters. I mean, in other words, you know, you, you just made a great point, like, OK, a future Senate tried to undo these findings. Um, but you still, you teach, uh, national security law and you still teach the, the findings of the Senate. And I think ultimately what the January 6th committee did that was valuable. I mean, to me, the most important function of it was they interviewed witnesses while it was all fresh. They gathered documents, they put everything together and created a historical record. And now you know, 20, 50, 70 years from now, 100 years from now, when people are trying to understand what motivated, you know, thousands of people to descend upon the Capitol. I think it was thousands of people to descend upon the Capitol and attack 
um, and try to to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, there will be a historical record, and I'm sure there will be some historic historians who might quibble with certain points of it. But it at least the the facts that they gathered, the interviews that they did, will live on. Yeah. So maybe we should talk, Asha, about um, you know, speaker and how that's going to turn out. I know one question that I've been asked is like, well, is there a chance we're going to have a Democrat as speaker? And I know there's all these crazy ideas. You had mentioned we were talking earlier, and you had mentioned maybe you know that that whole idea that people are like let's throw out Liz yeah. Cheney and see what the Republicans maybe we'll pick off two Republicans. So you know, the 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 bottom line is this: if the Republicans all vote together, there's going to be a Republican right. speaker. It, it doesn't have to be a member of the House, but it's, for all intents and purposes, it's going to be because those people are going to command more support. The question is, are there going to be enough defectors to throw it to have a Democratic speaker, right? So the thing is, j- just for everyone to understand, there's whatever it is, 435 members of the House, I believe. And all the Democrats are going to vote for Hakeem Jeffries to be speaker, okay, or whoever. Maybe there'll be a challenger to him, but I doubt it, right? So it's it, – or maybe that's settled. But so Hakeem – Jeffries is going to get, you know, the votes of the Democratic caucus. Every single one of them will vote for him. And so the Republicans, any Republican who's considering defecting has to decide, like, do they care enough about fighting over whether McCarthy is the speaker um, to make Jeffries the speaker? And that I just think is not realistically going to happen. In other words, McCarthy has the clear majority of the Republican votes. And so he is going it's either McCarthy or Jeffries is a practical matter. And so all of these wayward Republicans have to decide, do, an, do you know, a handful of them want to band together to throw it and say, we're going to vote for Which whatever, would be political suicide whether, for them. I think yeah. so. I agree. You, I, agree. I mean, you yeah. agree, right? Yeah. If a shoe was on the other foot, like, could you imagine? <laughs> could you imagine? It'll be like Kirsten Cinema right. or something. So right? it turns out that this, this particular aspect is not that complicated. <laughs> yeah, that one's kind of simple. I'm explaining that because, well, because people have these like weird yeah. hope. Like, well, there's only like a small majority. It's like, yeah, but let's just be real, like about how that's going to work. Um, but I think to me, one of the interesting things is, you know, I think there's two things. One is, will the will the House try to govern it all? Right. <clears throat> you know, in other words, are they going to actually pass? Or is it just going to be a theater you know, for two years? Yeah theater for two years. I don't know, Renato. What do you think? I'm going to vote for theater. (laughs) You know, it's an interesting question. I mean, if they're smart politically after at least they're going to try to get something done or, I mean, I mean, I suppose they can say we can blame the, that we, they can try to run in 2024 and blame the Dems for everything. Um, But I would think that, you know, the, the the good thing for Biden is he can now run against the, the Republicans in the House and say they're the problem and they're the reason we haven't been able to get things yeah. done. Well, and I think to bring this full circle to our earlier segment, this is all a part of the same downward shame spiral, right? Um, I'm doing a lot of book recommendations on, on this particular episode, but I would highly recommend a book called Let Them Eat Tweets by... Uh, Jacob Hacker, who's a Yale political science professor, and Paul Pearson, um, who's also a political science professor, uh, I forget at which university. But basically, this idea that there's no ideas 
in the Republican Party, or to the extent that there are ideas, they're ones that benefit a very, very small group of people who happen to be really rich. <laughs> um, and so the only way to bring in and mobilize voters is through uh, outrage, right? And so you manufacture outrage to get people out, um, you know, you, you get them riled up about CRT or whatever, woke military, whatever it is. And I think that these types of investigations in Congress help to legitimize those, right? Like you do the investigation into whatever, Hunter Biden's laptop, and then that can become something that you, that you use as fodder. Um, and I think that this is also why then their base is like shrinking because like at some point, like there's only going to be a certain, you know, finite number of people who can be mobilized by outrage and, you know, and it's getting more and more extreme because you have to keep kind of catering to the smaller and smaller base. And by the way, then you also have to keep engaging in increased voter suppression efforts because you can't win the elections based on this base. So mm -hmm. it's like this whole system. Um, and I think to, for you, for them to abandon that strategy would really require having like actual policy agenda. And I don't see that happening. I mean, I don't, unless I missed it, is there a policy agenda? So there was this program that uh, McCarthy put out there. We haven't seen them reference it or discuss it much, but there was a program that he put out. I, I think, yeah, it definitely it's not policy focused anymore. The, you know, the, the Republican party, you know, in the nineties even was very, if you remember the contract with America and all that, it was very, there was definitely a policy element to it. I do think there are policy elements of the Republican Party now. I mean, I, and some of them don't just benefit rich people. It's like, okay, we want to um, prevent women from exercising reproductive rights at any point in their lives, right? Or, for, or, or you know, uh, from X weeks onward or whatever, right? I mean, that's definitely a policy position. It, it has had political costs for them. Um, but it is a position that they could have, or, you know, we don't support the right of transgender Americans to live, you know, and express their identity or whatever. But I think it's a reaction, fundamentally a reactionary party. I mean, in other words, that's what it is, right? It's a party of people who are unhappy with recent societal change and they're reacting to that. Yeah. And I think it just to highlight, I think those two policy positions that you just mentioned are a part of that outrage machine, right? Like in other words, right. they are connected to the outrage issues that they have been uh, promoting. It's not, there's no like separate like education plan or, you know, uh, thoughtful foreign policy, you know, strategy or like something that's unrelated to their culture wars. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's fair to say. I mean, I think that they try to put things into that framework as much as possible. But they, they, some of the things can be very esoteric, right? I mean, for example, you know, there's this whole, you know, movement about big tech, big tech censoring us, right? And it's, it's actually in many ways profoundly a, a position that many d Democrats held for a long time for a number of years, but they've gone on that because Donald Trump talked about it and they, they're, they're convinced that they're aggrieved uh, regarding that. Or, yeah. um, you know, there, there are things that they have that, that turn out to be policy positions, um, whether or not, you know, let's defund the FBI or, you know, yeah. they're, they're reactions to specific events and whether they have any lasting uh, value, I don't know. But it's definitely hard to understand 
for me to understand the appeal of all of that. Um, but I, I look, my most of my family uh, is Republican and voted for Trump. And so I I do I'm around it all the time. And it's it's something that I am very curious to try to understand because it's so it's sadly so important right now. So before we go, and speaking of understanding your family, how was your Thanksgiving with all of your <laughs> Trump supporting, uh, you know, relatives? You know, it was it was fine. I actually I had a great uh, I actually had a great Thanksgiving. Um, went and um, uh, picked up my mom and brought her here, and had, my I, I live close to my pretty close to my mom now, and which is a nice thing. And then. You know, had all, you know a whole bunch of my uh, my wife's family over, and it was actually a very it was actually a very very nice Thanksgiving. Um, it's definitely I, I was not with all of the folks who I disagree with, but I do. My mom, for example, is somebody who's a Republican, and we just with her we don't we don't talk about a lot of this stuff much. Um, I do have members of my family that I have very you know uh, uncomfortable conversations with, not because of me. But because they bring up these subjects, I think there's this element to which um, they, they feel like compelled. Right. I'm sure you've had the same thing maybe at some point in your life where you have this person who it's like these these like, you know. Oh, my dad, my dad. I, I actually don't know. I mean, my dad has been a Republican for most of his life. I think he's a Trump supporter. Though he now, I, I don't really know, but he's kind of. I think he feels like everybody gangs up on Trump. That's sort of like oh, wow. the the. And so you know, he'll bring up stuff, and I just exit the room. Mm -hmm. That's my strategy. I'm like, I can't, I can't engage with this right now. Um, so yeah, I've dealt with it a little bit. On the other hand, you know, he watches MSNBC and CNN because I'm on. That's interesting. So I feel like I'm doing some counter, you know, radicalization by. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and he'll, he'll send people my op-eds and things like that. Cause he's a proud dad and wants everyone to read it. So I don't know. My dad's 80 years old. I, I'm now, my kids are convinced that he just basically believes everything he reads on the internet because his, his positions are really like inconsistent. Um, and you know, we, you can't really tell like what his political views are. Um, I think he just kind of reads and believes everything on the internet. So my mom will watch, you know, clips of mine or things like that. I mean, not as much anymore. It's been like so much, like it was a novelty in the beginning, but now it's like, Oh, he's on TV again. Like whatever. Okay. <laughs> it's like old. Um, uh, but you know, my, with my dad, I mean, he thinks he knows more about law than I do. So he'll argue with me about, you know, and my dad never graduated from high school and doesn't read or write very well, but he's got very strong views about the law and the Supreme court and everything, all that I think come from right wing radio and other sources. Have you watched it? Have you seen the documentary "The Brainwashing of My Dad"? No, I probably could. I probably could. could probably could have made it. that it's my really documentary. Good. It's sure. good. It's good, and they actually um, uh, wean wean the dad off of right wing. Wow. Talk radio um, by, I, I think they sneak him like NPR, or they get like somehow get him hooked on car talk or something on NPR. And then he starts listening to NPR and uh, kind of gets off the crazy train. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. There was one time where a right-wing radio host actually attacked me personally, and my dad heard it, and I think he was convinced by it. I don't know. Uh, crazy, 
crazy times. I'll tell you, these are crazy times we live in. So all this stuff about radicalization, it's definitely very personal, uh, personal to me.